was Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. Ephesians chapter 5. Around this time of year, we always try to acknowledge, I don't know, Valentine's Day. Uh, nobody really knows of the origin of Val- Valentine's Day, but uh, we always have a, a Sunday around this time of year, around Valentine's Day, that we call I Love My Church Sunday. And we just use it as an opportunity to express our uh, love for what Christ loves. Christ loves the church. And that's what our text is going to tell us this morning in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 25. And we're going to take a, a journey through the scriptures here. And uh, we'll start off here and, and we'll, end, we'll end up here. And so we'll come back around to this. And I'm hoping to illustrate for, uh, for everybody this morning some very important truths out of God's word. I know God would have us to do that. Ephesians 5 and verse number 25, the Word of God tells us here, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Notice that phrase, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you uh, for being that, the Redeemer of the rain, Lord. And, And even in those dark hours and those troublous times when, when we don't understand everything, you do, and, and you've got a purpose. You're always working in our lives for our good and your glory. As a matter of fact, uh, our good is your glory. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to really grab hold of that uh, truth in our lives. Lord, as we look at your word today, I pray that you'd help us to, uh, to see what it is that you're trying to communicate uh, to each and every one of us. It, it, it very well could be that each and every person in here could receive something different from you. It's an amazing thing to me, how you move and work in the lives and hearts of people. And we're asking you to do that today, Lord. We're, we're offering ourselves to you to, to be able to examine, to be able to, to speak to you, Lord. We're listening, we're leaning upon every word here and asking you, Lord, to bring to us some truth that we can respond to. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, the, the Word of God compares uh, the church the church to a home. The church is the local assembly. And uh, it's an interesting thing that God does through uh, the book of Ephesians here, how he says uh, that the church is, is a man, the church is a, uh, is, a, is a home, the church is a body, uh, the church is uh, a soldier. Uh, and so it goes on through uh, the book of Ephesians to demonstrate that. Of course, uh, the, the people are what make up the church. And so in Ephesians 5 and 6, the Word of God compares the church to a home. It, it provides instruction uh, for a happy home, but it also illustrates the relationship of Christ with the church. Now, with that introduction having been made, I'd like to shift our thoughts for just a moment uh, to this to this consideration, and that is the consideration that everybody needs three homes. Everybody needs three homes. Like I said, we started off with Ephesians 25 or 525, and we'll end up back over there uh, to, to conclude everything this morning. But let's consider this morning how that everybody needs three homes and how that all works together in the life of a, of a person or a, a life of somebody who comes to faith in Christ. So everybody needs three homes. The first one is this. Everybody needs a heavenly home. Everybody needs a heavenly home. If you'll take your Bible and begin to turn over to John chapter uh, 14, I'm going to give you a little bit of background here, and uh, then I'm going to meet you in John chapter 14, and, and, uh, 
and we'll make an explanation here concerning how everybody needs a heavenly home. In John 13, now you're going to John 14. I'm giving you background from John 13 to help set the, set the context. In John 13, a very special celebration was going on in Jerusalem. It was called the, the Passover, the Passover feast. And uh, Jesus is now standing in the shadow, as it were, the shadow of the cross. And he's approaching the time when, uh, when he'd be arrested and tried and, and beaten and put on the cross and, and be buried and rise again uh, the third day according to the Scriptures. And so it's a very special celebration going on in, in Jerusalem. Of course, uh, the Jews don't recognize him as the Messiah. But this thing's going on. The Passover is going on, the Passover feast. And Jesus knew in his omniscience that the time had come for him to leave the world. And we see that in John 13, 1. Now, I told you to go to John 14, but in, we'll read the first verse of John 13 and maybe a few other verses here too. Keep your finger right there, John 14. But John 13, 1, Jesus knows in his omniscience that he is uh, about to leave the world. Verse 1 says, Now the, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world, unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And so Jesus knew. Now, if, if Jesus was not God, he wouldn't know that. And so that's one of the proofs that we, we have, that Jesus was God in the flesh. He was omniscient. He was able to know uh, that it was time for him to leave the world. And Jesus told the disciples in verse number 33 that he would be leaving, but that they would be staying. Look at verse 33. It says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you. And so he knew this. He knew he was coming upon the time for him to leave the world. He tells the disciples he's going to be leaving, but they are going to be staying. And that was upsetting to the disciples. They love Jesus. They, uh, they've walked with him, talked with him, and been with him for three solid years. And, and so they'd grown very uh, close to Christ. Uh, it was upsetting to the disciples. We see that proof uh, through Peter, actually. Peter uh, asked our Lord, why, why can I go? Why can I go? Look at verse number 36. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. And verse 37, Peter said unto him, Lord, why can I not follow thee now? And he, he really just emphasizes his loyalty to Christ. He said, I'm willing to die for you. And of course, after that, Jesus said, yeah, Peter, I know you're willing to die for me, but the truth is you're going to deny me three times before the sun comes up tomorrow. You know, And so all that is taking place. And then in John chapter 14, as, as we move to John chapter 14, in verses 2 and 3, Jesus explains why. He was leaving. He explains why he's leaving. He said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you that, uh, that where I am, there ye may be also. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. So he gives the reason why he was leaving. And Jesus was leaving to complete the work that needed to be done so that everybody everywhere might have every opportunity to have a home in the presence of God, a heavenly home. Now our ability to have a heavenly home is all the work of God. You notice what Jesus said? He said, I go 
to prepare a place for you. And so the heavenly home that Christ has prepared for us uh, is all the work of God. We, of course, know that Jesus is God in the flesh. God came to this earth as a man, but he never ceased to be God in in, in the person of Christ. And Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. So that's all the work of God. We also know that in Titus 3, 5, the word of God says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. We see, it's not what we do, it's what he's done. And uh, the work uh, it takes to have a heavenly home is, is not only done entirely by God, but it was, it was done entirely by God. It was complete. And that the word of God tells us again in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace, the unmerited favor of God, are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You know, there's not going to be any boasting in heaven. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Isn't it a wonderful thing that the ground at the foot of the cross is level? It's level. And we can all come to Christ the same way, sinners in need of a Savior. And when we all get to heaven, as the song we sing sometimes, when we all get to heaven, what what rejoicing there will be, and I'll tell you this, there won't be rejoicing in what I've done, there won't be rejoicing in what you've done. There'll only be rejoicing in what Christ has done. When he went and prepared that place, it was all the work of God, and it was a completed work. For by grace are you saved through faith, taking God into his word, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift, a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Back in John chapter 14, when Jesus explained where he was going and, and that he was coming back, another character in this story speaks up, Thomas. Remember Thomas, doubting Thomas? Thomas asked, Lord, how can we know the way? Look at verse number 5 of John 14. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And and Jesus said to him in verse number 6, this is a verse we pick out sometimes and we forget the context of it, but Jesus said, I am the way. The truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And, uh, and so the only way to have a heavenly home is by turning from everything, I mean everything, that we thought would give us a relationship with God and a heavenly home and trust in Christ alone for that, for, to, to obtain that. And that's, that's a, what the Bible teaches, and, and that is what we learn about everybody needing a heavenly home. Maybe you're here today, and you might be trusting in, in your good works. You're hoping that when you get to heaven, the good outweighs the bad. I hear that a lot when I talk to people about these spiritual things. And they know they've done some bad things in their lives, but they, they also know they've done some good things. And, and the truth is, a lot of people have done some good things. And there are some good people that have done some good on this earth, and we're thankful for that. But you know, our goodness, our righteousness is as filthy rags when it comes to comparison with what Christ has done and who Christ is. And Well, I tell you, we need, if we want to have that heavenly home, we need to follow the instruction of the Lord in recognizing that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody gets to have that heavenly home without going through Christ. And so everybody, everybody ought to have a heavenly home. You know what keeps us from that heavenly home? Our sin. Our sin keeps us from that heavenly home. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Well, I'm going to mention something about that in just a few minutes when we're talking about a different home. I'm going to bring something else out. It's, it's what God gave us to help us realize 
what sinners we are. It really emphasizes for us the sin in our lives. And we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. But in order to have that heavenly home, uh, Christ had to pay for our sin. Uh, but God commendeth his love toward us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why did Christ die? Because he had to pay for the sins of mankind. And he did. And uh, he accomplished that. And God was satisfied with that payment. The Bible word for it is propitiation. Christ uh, became the propitiation. The, it satisfied the wrath of God. And he offered up his own blood as a sacrifice for the sins of all mankind that we might be made the righteousness of God in him so we can have a heavenly home. He's the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but by him. And, and so we see, first of all, everybody needs a heavenly home. Number two, are you ready? If you're taking notes, number two. Everybody ought to have a Christian home. Isn't, it a, isn't a Christian home a wonderful thing? I mean, I'm not talking about Christian in name. I'm talking about a, a real Christian home. As, as we might think of it in our, in, our, uh, in our minds, what a Christian home ought to be like. Some of us grew up in, in homes that were genuine Christian homes. I, I can say that's my testimony. The home I grew up in was a genuine Christian home. My father loved the Lord. My mother loved the Lord. And they weren't perfect. Boy, they weren't perfect. But I tell you this, I never doubted that my mother and father loved the Lord, and I never doubted that my mother and father loved me. And my uh, father and mother pointed me to Christ, and they brought me to church, and we had a Christian home. Some of my earliest memories, I remember getting up sometimes early in the morning. I'd see a light on in the kitchen, and I'd go out, and I'd poke my head around the corner in the kitchen. My dad would be sitting at the table, our dog Dusty laying on his feet, my dad pouring over the scriptures and reading his Bible early, early, early in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning, before he went off to work. I remember that. I remember my mother. She, boy, she loved the Lord right till the. I, I don't know if you've. Uh, we showed the video. My mother passed away. I guess it'd be five years ago in April this year, and um, they did a video about her and uh, her testimony and how she was able to cope with cancer, dying with cancer, and she did it. She she died without any medication. She died at home in her own bed, and and she had just determined that she was going to leave it in the Lord's hands, and that was enough for her. That was enough peace. She was in pain. Uh, but the Lord gave her the grace that she needed, and, and she went from time into eternity right to the end. My mother served the That was my privilege. That was my Christian home. Now, I recognize not everybody uh, grew up in a home like that, and, but boy, wouldn't you like to? Wouldn't you like to? As I even talk about it, I, there, maybe if you didn't get to, you thought, well, I wish that's how I grew up. Some uh, homes, they said they were Christian, but there were abusive things that went on in the home, and I'm, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry about that. That's, that's a shame, isn't it? It's a shame that people have to uh, grow up in a home uh, that uh, is Christian in name only, and they hide behind the Christian name, and they, they abuse. There's abuse going on in the family. That's a horrible thing. Some of you grew up in homes that, I mean, you didn't even know how to spell Christian until uh, later on in life when you got saved, you know, and you didn't have a Christian home at all. But everybody ought to have a Christian home. Now, I know this is deep theology, but I also know you understand me. I'm a pretty practical person. But here it is, Christian homes, you ready for this, are made up of Christian people. Now, I know that's deep, I know that's deep, but that's a fact. Christian homes are made up of Christian people. When a person secures their heavenly home, they can also lay hold of one of the greatest privileges on this earth, and that is having a Christian home. Now, to be a true Christian, one must not only be a believer in Christ, 
but also one who walks with Christ, who takes repeated steps in becoming more Christ-like. Now, I'm going to say something this morning that might get your attention, and I'll explain it the very best that I can, but it is possible to be a believer without being a Christian. Did you know that? I've mentioned that before, and, and I'm kind of rehearsing or re, re, uh, uh, re, redoing some of the stuff, some of the ground we've laid before. But it's possible to be a believer in Christ and not be a Christian. I, th- I think this verse in James chapter 2 is an interesting verse, and I, but I think it's one that's pertinent to this thought, that it's possible to be a believer in Christ without being a Christian. James 2.19, James, by the way, the half-brother of Jesus. James, the half-brother of Jesus, And I think when James wrote this, he was thinking of his own family because all of Jesus' brothers and sisters didn't believe that he was the Messiah. You know that? Not all of them did. And so James, a half-brother of Jesus, writes this in James 2.19, Thou believest that there is one God. And you can almost see James kind of sarcastically going, Well, good for you. You know? Thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. I don't believe he's being insincere. But he's trying to make a point here. He says in James 2.19, Thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. The devils. The devils. So you see, it's possible to be a believer without being a Christian. So there's got to be something different. To be a true believer in Christ, one has to believe in the person of Christ, first of all. That is that Christ is God in the flesh. We're shown that idea in John 1.14 where the Word of God says, And the Word, that is Christ, was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God in the flesh. And so when somebody becomes a true believer, they've got to believe that Jesus is God. He's co-equal with God in existence. He's co-equal with God in authority. He's co-equal with God in power. Who, uh, Paul said to the church at Philippi, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And it's the same reason we see the Jews taking up stones time and time and time again to, to stone Jesus with because he made himself God. Or that's what they thought. The fact is, he, he is God. He's God in the flesh. And so to be a true believer in Christ, one, one must believe in the person of Christ that he is God in the flesh. Now, if, if somebody calls himself a Christian or calls himself a believer, let's say, and they do not believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, they are not a believer. You see, that's what the devils believe. The devils don't believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. That's why the devil took Jesus out into the wilderness to tempt him because he thought he could tempt Jesus and and draw him away from what he was saying about being God in the flesh. You know, that's that's the position that that Lucifer wanted. So he tried to draw Jesus out. Of course, we know that Jesus... Uh, is God in the flesh. The Word of God tells us that. He's co-equal in existence and authority and power with God. To be a true believer, one must believe in the person of Christ, but one must also believe in the passion of Christ. The passion of Christ, and by that I mean His completed work at Calvary. Hebrews 10.10 says, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, and here it is, I love this phrase, phrase, once for all. Once for all. You see, the blood of the bulls and the goats and the sacrificial system wasn't enough. It was only a covering. That's why they called it an atonement. It was just a covering for sin. 
It was only pointed to the, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins, that taketh away. He didn't just cover the sins. He took away the sins of the world. He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The blood of bulls and goats, it wasn't enough. But the blood of Jesus Christ, it satisfied the wrath of God. And he's, uh, Jesus did something that no Old Testament priest ever did. You know that in the tabernacle, there was all kinds of pieces of furniture. There was an altar of incense. There was a, uh, the altar of sacrifice. There's a table of showbread. There's the Ark of the Covenant. There are all these different articles of furniture. But you know what piece of furniture was not found in the tabernacle? The thing you're sitting on, a chair. No chair. Because the work of the priest was an ongoing thing. Over and over again, the blood had to be shed. The blood had to be offered. The blood had to be shed. The blood had to be offered. But when Jesus offered up his own blood, before the Father, the wrath of God was satisfied, and the Bible tells us that he sat down at the right hand of the throne of the Father. Because it was done. It was a completed work once for all. And by the way, in order to become a true believer, you only have to do it once. If you'll believe in the person of Christ, that he is God in the flesh, you believe in the passion of Christ, his completed work at Calvary by his shed blood, death, burial, and resurrection for your sins, the Bible says if you'll place your faith in Christ alone, turn from everything, that's repentance. Did you know that? This idea of, of this of repentance being having to repent of every sin you ever did, that's impossible. That's impossible to repent of every sin that you did. Now, repentance of sin is a real thing. It's what we do after we're saved. Before we're saved, we have no power to repent of our sins. It's an impossibility to repent of all of our sins. There's no way a person can go back and say, oh yeah, I remember when I was two years old. You know, you can't do it. It's an impossibility. So repentance unto God in the Bible is this idea. Repentance is the idea of a change of mind that results in a change of heart that results in a change of direction. I was going this way, now I'm going this way. And so when we're talking about repentance unto salvation, it's this, it's this thing of, I was going this way. I thought this was going to give me a relationship with God. I thought this was going to give me a heavenly home. But now I see that Christ is the way, the truth, and life. And so I turn from this to Jesus Christ alone. And that's how somebody becomes a true believer. They turn, they repent of the direction they were going to Jesus Christ alone. And they place their faith and hope in Christ uh, for their security and for their hope of a, an eternal home in heaven. When I say hope, I don't mean that you hope you get one. You, just, you know it's coming. You're just, you're just waiting for it. And you're taking God at his word. And so that's what it takes for one to, uh, to be a believer in Christ, a true believer, believe in the person of Christ, believe in the passion of Christ. Now, let me go one step further. The only way to be a true Christian is to keep taking repeated steps with Christ after we have believed after we've believed. There's an interesting uh, part of Scripture in John chapter 6. And uh, Jesus was, uh, you know, speaking of himself, and, and he was uh, talking to the group of people that was following him, and, and he said, except a man eat my flesh and drink my blood, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He can't, he can't be saved. He can't be a true believer. That was a tough thing. I mean, that sounds kind of gross, doesn't it? And uh, they, they, there's a group of them that couldn't get past that. And if you want to take your Bible and turn to John chapter 6, I'll show you what they said in just a minute. Now, these were, these were followers of Christ. These were Christians. They looked forward to the work that Christ was going to do, just like we look back to it in John chapter 6. We'll be there in just a second. And so they're following Christ. They're walking with Christ. They're 
truly Christian. That word Christian didn't come later. It was a derogatory term that was given to the people that followed Christ. It was like, ooh, little Jesus is. You know, Bible thumper, Jesus freak, that kind of thing. And it was kind of that idea that they were casting and making fun of uh, these, these folks in Antioch that they called Christians. Oh, little Jesus. Okay. And, but the, the saints at Antioch said, yeah, we kind of like that. <laughs> you don't call me a Christian, you call me a Christian. And it kind of took away, the, took away the wind out of the sails of those that were making fun of them. And they took that as a badge of honor. Oh, you want to call me a little Christ? That's fine with me. If you're going to compare me with anybody in this world, you can compare me with Christ. That, that, you, if you want to call me a little Christ, you go right ahead. I mean that, you know. And if that's what we're known for is being little Jesuses, that's a good thing. That's kind of how those saints at Antioch felt. But we're back here in John chapter 6, and Jesus is saying these things, and they're not getting it. Jesus is speaking spiritually, but they can't get past blood and flesh. They just can't get past the flesh. And Jesus said this, and it's kind of like it is sometimes when we read something in the Word of God, and, and we say, man, that's, that's a tough pill to swallow. I don't get that. I don't get why did that happen in the Word of God. And sometimes we run up on stuff in the Word of God, and, and we say the same thing. It's a hard thing. That's a hard thing. That's exactly what they said. Those people that were following Christ said in John chapter 6. Now look at verse number 66. After Jesus, this all took place in John 6 and verse number 66, the Word of God says, From that time, many of his disciples went back. To be a disciple, you've got to be a follower. You've got to, be, you've got to take repeated steps with Christ. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. They ceased being disciples. They ceased being Christian. They were still believers. They still believed in Christ. They still perhaps believed in the person of Christ and in the passion of Christ and, and all that was going to take place. And they didn't cease to be believers. They still got to enjoy the benefits of salvation. But they said, you know, we're not taking any more steps with Christ because this is just too hard for us to understand. And they ceased to be Christian. By its, by its definition, they ceased to be Christian. They went on being believers, but they ceased to be Christian because they went back and walked no more with him. So let's go back to this idea of the Christian home. The only way to have a Christian home is for the believers in that household to take repeated steps in pursuit of Christ. And each person in the home is accountable for themselves. Romans 14, 12, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. And so the only way for a Christian home, to have a Christian home, is for the believers in that household to take repeated steps in pursuit of Christ. And each is accountable to themselves. Now others in the household are going to be challenged by that. I think it's interesting. If you want to take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, you're going to see something here of what it looks like when a believer in a household decides, you know what, I'm going to keep taking repeated steps with Christ. I'm going to continue to follow Christ, doing what I know that he wants me to do. Now, now the truth is, there may be one believer in the home, there may be several believers in the home, but the only way to have a Christian home is for, is for each believer, whoever that is, to be taking repeated steps with Christ. And others in the household are going to be challenged by the testimony of those who keep their walk with God pure. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, speaking to wives, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that 
if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation or the lifestyle of the wives. While they behold your chaste conversation, that is your pure lifestyle, coupled with fear. And so what happens is, in this case, we'll use the wife. The wife is a believer. Maybe the husband is, maybe he's not. But the wife says, you know what? I'm going to walk with, I'm going to walk with Christ. In my home, I want a Christian home. I have a heavenly home. Now I want to have a Christian home, so I am accountable to God, and so I'm going to walk with Christ. Now maybe her husband is a believer, maybe he's not. The Bible tells us here that when somebody, when a believer in the home will take, they won't just be a believer in Christ, but they'll be a true Christian, and they'll live a Christian life, and they'll walk with Christ. It has an influence on those other people in the home. If they're an unbeliever, perhaps they'll come to faith in Christ. I've seen it happen time and time and time again. Perhaps they're a believer, but they're not walking with Christ. And I've seen where, it's, hey, listen, it's convicting when you get around somebody who's walking with Christ and you're not. It, right? Isn't it convicting? It's convicting in a household when you've got one person that decides, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And when that one person at home decides, I'm going to live the Christian life, not in, just in word, but in deed, it influences the other in the home. And it begins to give them a Christian home. And it begins to influence the others in that home as well. And so uh, we see there uh, what the Word of God says about influencing others in the home. In Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, again, I told you we were coming back around to this, and we are. The Word of God compares the church to a home. And these chapters provide instructions which make any household a good one to live in. Now, I'll just throw this out there for you to consider. Whether or not somebody is a believer, if, if they live, this is, a, this is a question for you to answer in your own heart. I don't even mind if somebody answers out loud. You're welcome to do that. But if, if anybody, a believer, an unbeliever, a Christian, an atheist, Let's just think of the, you know, the polar opposite of what, what we would call a Christian. If an atheist applies the principles of the Bible in their life and in their home, is it going to lead them to good or to evil? Right? It's going to lead them to good. I recently had a conversation with somebody who doesn't know if there's a God or not. They're not an atheist, but they're an agnostic. And I presented that with them. I said, I said listen, what if, what if you followed the principles of the Bible? Believing what you believe, don't change anything you believe, but follow the principles of the Bible. What are the two great commandments? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. And love thy neighbor as thyself. But all, those two commandments hang all the other commandments. Right? If those are the only two things that you do in your life and you apply those principles to your life, is it going to lead you to good or to evil? And the person told me, well, it's going to lead me to good. There's no other book like this in the world. And so if Ephesians chapters 5 and 6, are the principles in them are applied to any home, I don't care what home it is, it's going to be a good home to live in. I, you know, Christian, non-Christian, atheist, acknowledging God or not, Anybody who follows the principles that are outlined in Ephesians chapters 5 and 6 is going to have a household. Um, it may not be a Christian home, but it's going to be a good home to live in because the Christian principles are being applied to it. So notice, in the Christian home, there are people. Now, in the Christian home, there's saved people. All right? 
So the first group of people that we're going to talk about this morning is in Ephesians 6, 1, children. Any children in this room? Emily? All right, you classify there. She just ducked under the seat when I pointed her out. Ella, Ella's back there. We've got some children in here. The Bible says in Ephesians 6, 1, children, what? Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Right? That's what the Word of God says. Now, if anybody has children that'll take that and say, you know what, I'm going to obey mom and dad, that's going to create quite a nice place to live, isn't it? I don't care if you where you go to church, but if you'll apply that biblical principle in your home, uh, that's going to be a wonderful place to live. So, much more so if you have saved people in the home, people that are Christians. So, um, you got the children. And let me point out this as well. In order to have a Christian home, you don't need all these parts. Okay? And we'll come back around to that in just a minute. So, you've got the children. Children. Then you've got wives. You've got wives. So there's, a, there's children, and then, you ready? There's a woman. Okay? Aren't you glad that we didn't have to define uh, gender identity? It's not up to us to do it. God, God defined it. Can I tell you this? There's no such thing as a homosexual, and there's no such thing as a heterosexual. Those words were created by a, uh, by a sexual deviant in 1868. His name was Carl Kurt Benny. Carl Kurt, ben- uh, Carl Kurt Benny. They, uh, he was a sexual deviant. He was a writer, a journalist. Is a not a God-fearing man. I don't, uh, from what I understand, what I read, I, I can't imagine he was a God-fearing man. But he introduced those terms homosexual and heterosexual. And uh, we, we use them all the time. We use the language of a sexual deviant all the time. There is no homosexual. There is no heterosexual. Can I tell you what there is? Male and female. That's it. Now, you can add as many letters to that as you want, but there's still only two, male and female. And if you're confused about it, you can go get a test, and it'll tell you one of two things. You've got two X chromosomes. If you need help translating that, come see me. That means you're a female. You have an X and a Y chromosome. That means you're a male. You know what's even better? God doesn't identify us by our sexuality. Identifies us by our name. He knows us by name. I'm not trying to be cruel and, and poke fun of anybody that struggles with that, their identity. But it doesn't have to be hard. There's two, male and female. There is nothing else. And so in the home, there's children. And those children are either male or female. There's a wife that's a female. Not only did God define our gender and identify our gender for us, he also identified what marriage was. In the book of Genesis, it's the most amazing thing. When God created Eve out of Adam's rib, by the way, he didn't take her out of his head so she'd be over him, didn't take her out of his foot so she'd be beneath him. He took her right out of his side so she'd be equal to him. Isn't that wonderful? And, and then when that happened, God said this in Genesis 
chapter 2, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. You know what I find interesting about that? Adam and Eve didn't have a mother and a father. So right there in Genesis chapter 2, God gives us, not, not only in Genesis well, 1 do we see the uh, identity, gender identity, but we also see the definition of marriage, a man and a woman. Go figure. We didn't even need the Supreme Court. God said it in his word. The Supreme Court said it uh, from the portals of heaven, right? And so there's the wife, and the Bible says in Ephesians 5, if you want to make your way back over there, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. So there's the woman. There's a man, Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for. So whether our household has one, some, or all of these, it can be a Christian home. You might not have children, but you can still have a Christian home. You might have a wife or you might not have a husband. You can still have a Christian home. All it takes is for one of, one of those or all of those to decide, you know what, I'm going to live the Christian life, and you can have, you can have a Christian home. So everybody needs a, Christ, a heavenly home, and everybody needs a Christian home. Lastly, in conclusion, everybody needs a church home. Oh, you thought you were going to get out of here without that one, didn't you? Everybody needs a church home. The church is the visible body of Christ, the local assembly of saved, baptized believers. The Bible says, and then when they gladly received his word, were baptized, the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Revelation 19, we find, the, find this um, story of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Take your Bible, turn to uh, Revelation 19. We've got to go fast now. Revelation 19. We see the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, verse 6. I'm going to go ahead. You'll catch up to me. Revelation 19, verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia. Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. What a beautiful thing. What an honor to be the bride of Christ, wouldn't it? His church, beyond any way that we could describe it, is honored and glorified as the bride of Christ. In Revelation 19.8, the Bible says, to her, the wife, was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. And you know what? We learned from our text this morning, it's the place where we started off. Christ loved the church, and he gave himself for it. Christ loved the church, and he gave himself for it. So when somebody has a heavenly home, they can uh, have a Christian home, but they can also have this wonderful thing. They can be part of something called the church home. The church is made up of saved, baptized believers. And if we love Jesus, I think we ought to, it only makes sense that, uh, that we ought to love the thing that, things that he loves. I, I think it's hard to understand. It's hard for me to understand. Why would somebody want to say, well, I want to have a heavenly home and I want to have a Christian home, uh, but, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily want to have a church home. Let me explain why. It seems like they, they want us... They want us all to be up there together. I mean, they want to be there with us, and they want us to be there with them, but they don't want to be with us here. And if Christ loved the church, then why would somebody not want to get attached with that? I understand that there's problems in the church, but you know, <laughs> there's problems in other places too. I've heard a lot of people say, well, I don't go to church because of all the hypocrites. And my response to that is, well, one more is not going to hurt us, you know. And you know? I don't understand it. The church, the church is the beloved of Christ. We are what the, the Greek word is koinonia. We are the koinonia. 
That means the fellowship, the participation, the sharing, the being together, the serving together toward the common goal. It means loving the local church and being used of God to help build it. I don't have time to go through it this morning, but I've got seven reasons you ought to love the church. I'm not going to do it. I'll just, oh, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to go quickly. I promise, okay? Are you ready? Number one, we ought to love church because the head of it. Christ is the head of the church. We ought to love church, number two, because the heritage of it. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about so, with uh, so great a cloud of witnesses. Think of all the wonderful people in our lives, all the uh, Christians that have gone before. We ought to love the church because of the head of it, because of the heritage of it, because the household it represents, it represents the household of God. Because of the heavenly, number four, because of the heavenly commission, it's given to go, preach, baptize, and teach. We ought to love the church. We ought to love the church because of the help that it offers. They, they, the Word of God says that we have the ministry of reconciliation. What a great thing. Jude 22, and some have compassion. Well, we ought to love the church because of the help that it offers. It offers compassion. It offers reconciliation. We ought to love the church because the home that it reinforces, the Christian home. I like Malachi chapter 4 and verse number 6 where the Word of God tells us the heart of the fathers shall be turned toward the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. That's what's so neat about having, having a church home. The church will help us have a, have a, have a Christian home. And then number 7, because of the hope that the church anticipates. We ought to love the church because of the hope that it anticipates looking for that blessed hope the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So as true Christians, let's love the church, the local church, and show it by joining it, supporting it, defending it, serving it, and telling others about it. Why? Because everybody needs a heavenly home. Everybody needs a Christian home. And everybody needs a church home. That's why. That's why. I love my church. I hope that you do too. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. We're going to turn to song number 485. We'll stand and sing in just a moment, 485. Mrs. Knoft is going to get ready, and she's going to play this hymn of invitation. It's an old favorite, 485, Have Thine Own Way. I'd just like to ask you a few questions. When she begins to play, I'm going to ask you a few questions, and then we'll sing a couple of verses of this invitation song. You know for sure that you have a heavenly home. You know for sure that if your life was to come to an end today, and I hope it doesn't, God forbid that it should, but do you know for sure that heaven would be your home? Would you be in the presence of God if you left this world today, stepped out of time and into eternity? Do you know for sure that you have a heavenly home? You can. You can. And I hope that you'll come during this invitation so that somebody can take the Word of God and show you from the Word of God, how you can know 100% for sure that you've got a heavenly home. Maybe you're here today and you would desire a Christian home. And maybe you're a believer and you're the only believer in your household. Or maybe you're uh, one of uh, several believers in the household. Maybe there's a whole family that would respond during the invitation and you say, Lord, we want to have a Christian home. We don't just want to be believers, but we want to be followers of Christ. We want to we want to commit ourselves to taking steps, repeated steps with Christ. We want a Christian home. You can, be, you can be all alone in your house and still make that commitment today. Maybe you'd come during invitation time for that. Or maybe you're here today and you don't have a church home. Maybe today would be the day that you'd place your membership here. You're saved, you're baptized, and you want a place that 
you can make your home here on this earth, a church home, church home, the beloved of Christ. I invite you to come. Any number of things that God may have spoken in your heart about as we stand, as we sing 485, you come. We've made the plea, we've made the appeal. You come. Here's the invitation, 485 on the first verse. Standing as we sing.